0: Thank you that you are the solid rock upon which we stand, that Lord, it's you that we put our hope, our faith, our trust. We thank you, Lord, that while everything around us moves, you never do. You're always faithful, you're always there, you're always perfect, and you love us so much. We thank you that we can take a million steps away from you and it's only one step back. We just love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We ask as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. And if you do have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I just spilled water all over myself, so there you go. Just try not to electrocute myself while I'm up here. Alright, uh, again, two things. The, uh, the Israel trip, I want to encourage you, pray about that. Because it is phenomenal. It's the Bible in 3D, as I tell people. I mean, imagine sitting on the Sermon on the Mount and being taught the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine sitting on the Sea of Galilee and you know, where Jesus walked on water and teach about Jesus walking on water. And you'll never look at the Bible the same. And as Pastor Chuck says, two weeks in Israel is worth a year of Bible college. And I believe that's absolutely true. So be praying about that. And it's just a great, great time. It's the ultimate retreat. And then also the uh, trip to India. It's actually September 17th through October 1st. And in the past, Gospel for Asia has only allowed pastors to come and teach. Uh, Inductive Bible study, which is what I do to about 500 pastors each time I go. Guys who are going out two by two to plant churches. And there's going to be a great opportunity to bring either people with an ability to minister to people in a medical way or anybody with any kind of a construction. You don't have to be a contractor, but just any kind of ability in those ways. So be praying about both of those things. You know what? The Lord desires that we would not just... Be inwardly focused, amen? amen. He wants us to not only be worried about our walk with God, but have a burden for the lost and reach out to the world around us. All right. So Second Corinthians chapter ten, we continue our verse by verse study, and I want to encourage you. Some of you I know are you miss hit and miss sometimes, and uh, I want to say this: that we have CDs in the back, and we have tapes. They're always free. They always will be. So if you miss a week and you want to know, you know, because you know what, every chapter is in there for a reason, Amen. And so if you miss a week, go grab the CD and get caught up, all right? I want to encourage you to do that. Now as we come to this final portion of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. The Corinthians, as we've talked about, some refer to First and Second Corinthians as First and Second Californians because the Corinthians were very much like us. And that's not a good thing, by the way. They were very wealthy, but they were very ungodly. They were caught up in idol worship and the philosophies of man and... You know, they were really chasing after the things of this world, and because of that, in the midst of that, Paul planted a church there that was thriving and doing well, and then five years in, he gets word that they've gotten their eyes off of God, and they're starting to become like the world, and that's an exhortation to every single one of us. We're to be in the world, but not of it, amen? The boat's to be in the water, but the water should not be getting in the boat. We're here, again, to reach people for Christ, and we're not to be conformed to the world to do it. People are not attracted to Jesus because He was just like them. And again, that's not, and we'll talk about that in the text today, that God desires that we be different than the world. And so the first Corinthian letter goes out, and the people respond, and many of them repent and get right with God, and that's a blessing. But also, at the response of that first letter that brought great joy to Paul's heart, when Titus brought back news that the people received the first letter, and many had repented and were walking with God again, word also came that there was a group that rejected Paul completely. There was a group of Judaizers, the false teachers of the day, guys who considered themselves to be super apostles, greater than the Apostle Paul, and they said, you know what, he's not even really an apostle. And they basically attacked him and said he was faithless, and they went after him, and these last four chapters is now going to change, and Paul is going to move from talking about being faithful and giving and talking about enduring through trials, and now he's really going to address these guys who've been attacking him. And he's going to address them in such a way as he's going to build up his own character in one sense. We're going to see Paul's heart and who he is. It's almost going to look like he's boasting about himself. But he's really boasting about what Christ has done in his life. When we boast, we boast in Christ. Amen? We're not to draw attention to ourselves. We're to point people to the Lord. That ought to be our heart at all times, and so that's what we're going to pick up today, they've been questioning his authority, his apostleship, his motives, his faithfulness, and these mudslingers said that Paul, you know, they said Paul writes real heavy letters, but when he shows up he's a wimp, literally, they said he's just a wimp, he writes real tough letters, you know, he's all bark and no bite, you know, he sounds real tough when he's real far away, but when he shows up in town, there's not much to him, he's a real meek guy. And we're going to see that he's going to address that issue. But again, these accusations were coming against one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. They said he was unimpressive. They said he was a man without character. And they literally said he was ugly and didn't know how to preach. Thanks a lot, right? I mean, so here's the guy that planted the church in Corinth. And some of the very people that got saved through that church are now just ripping him, you know, and mercilessly. And actually, this is an encouragement to me sometimes. Because when people go after pastors and they always do, and that's okay, I mean that's gonna happen. I just remember that we're not alone, amen. Pastor Paul, they went after the Lord, they went after Paul. I've got a fly up here that just is real interested in me. All right. In this final section of the letter, Paul moves from encouraging, instructing the Corinthian believers to challenging these rebels in the church, these false teachers, and again, defending himself against these accusations. And it's in these final chapters that Paul's real character is going to be revealed, and we're going to see his real heart. And then again, not trumpeted by Paul, do I draw attention to himself but to point people to the Lord and the proof of his calling. And in these chapters, he's going to refer directly to these accusers, and he's going to be real hard on them. And he's not going to hide the fact that these self-righteous Judaizers are tools of Satan. That's how he's going to refer to them. By the way, if somebody teaches another gospel, guess what? There is only one God, amen? And there's only one truth, and there is only one hope, and you're either for God or you're against Him. There are not many paths to God. Contrary to what you might hear in Santa Cruz, amen? There are not many paths, there's one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And people say, that's narrow. God makes the rules. Take it up with the author, amen? But I'm glad there's only one way, because it's really simple then, isn't it? I don't have to wonder which of the 50 paths I'm going to take. I'm going the the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And 20 times he's going to use the word boast or glory, but he's going to glory in the Lord. Paul glorifies in Christ. He's not defending himself personally. I want you to notice this. I'm setting up the next four chapters because it's all about the, the, the same theme. He's not going to defend himself personally. He's defending his calling and his authority as someone set apart by God. He's not, he doesn't care about personality contests. He doesn't, he's not arguing with other ministers and trying to you know, promote himself his enemies didn't hesitate to accuse him falsely, and Paul would never hesitate to talk about Jesus, but he was real hesitant to talk about himself. Paul was, would talk about Jesus anywhere, anytime to anybody that would listen, but he was very hesitant to talk about himself. And sadly, in the church today, we're not very hesitant to talk about ourselves, and we're more hesitant to talk about Jesus, amen? Oh, come on now, amen? Isn't that true? That's an exhortation for all of us. We like to talk about ourselves. I'm always on my mind, right? It's all about me, right? And we love to talk about ourselves, but Paul was a guy who didn't want to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about Jesus, and that should be an example for us. Amen? It shouldn't be weeks and months go by that we haven't talked to anybody about the Lord, because you know what? When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last, and nothing else is going to matter. We stand before Almighty God, it won't matter how big your house was, it won't matter you know, how much you could bench press or anything else, The stuff that we think is important now. So Paul's boasting is limited to the ministry God gave him. So I titled the message today, How to Judge a True Apostle. How do we know the difference between those who have been called by God and those who have not? We're going to see a contrast over the next four weeks of the Judaizers and the false teachers and the one who's truly been called by God, the Apostle Paul. Now this morning, we're going to see several things. First of all, we should look and see if someone ministers according to the flesh. Do they minister according to the Spirit, or do they minister according to the flesh? Is it the Holy Spirit speaking through them, or is it simply their own physical abilities and their own charisma that's coming out? What do we see? Do we see Jesus, or do we see a man when that person is teaching or ministering? That's the first thing we'll see. Second of all, does He base things on outward appearance? Again, we are so easily to do. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And somebody who's not truly called by God will base success on the outward appearance. It's not the outward appearance that matters. It's where we stand with God that matters, amen? And God's not called us to to draw a crowd, but to make disciples. And even in churches, we can think we're being very successful because we have a lot of people. And I'm not saying churches with a lot of people is wrong. We should have churches that are growing and blessed. But I also want to say this: the fact that a church has a lot of people does not mean it's walking in the center of God's will. Too often, what happens? The people are being drawn by ear tickling. They're being drawn by you know, I don't know what every kind of program. We got the flying Melendes on Wednesday night, and you know, Bozo's going to be here, and you know, do everything you can to draw a crowd. But you know what? We need to preach Jesus Christ because that's what transforms lives and nothing else. And so is it the outward appearance? What is the source of authority? that the person has and how does he use his authority and what standard does he measure himself against and where does his praise and approval come from so beginning in verse one how do we judge you someone who's truly been sent out by god the first part portion is does he walk and minister according to the flesh verse one now i paul myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of christ who in presence Am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Now, this goes back to those charges I said they made against Paul. They were saying that he was bold in his letters, but he was meek and mild when he showed up. They'd read his letters and go, man, this guy is going to be Atlas when he gets here. You know, we read his letter and this guy, whoa, I mean, he's so direct and so powerful that when he comes walking in here, no doubt he's going to be eight feet tall and, you know, carrying, you know, tribes of people under his arms. This guy's going to be a stud. Now, it's interesting that we found out about Paul. Again, they said he was all bark and no bite, and that you know when he's real far away, he's real tough, but when he shows up, he's just a weakling. There's actually historical writings that describe Paul that most people be- believe are pretty accurate, and this is how it describes him. It says he was a short man with thick, bushy eyebrows that met in the middle. He had a hooked nose, and he was bow-legged. So when you're expecting Atlas... And in walks Pee-wee Herman, right? And you know, with bushy eyebrows, like, whoa, right? And so they looked at him, and when he showed up, he was meek. Now, I want to, I want to talk about meekness. And, and, and interestingly enough, the way he begins this chapter, I love it. He says, now I, Paul, the word Paul means little. He says, now I, Paul, humble, little. When I'm writing on behalf of God, I'm writing under his authority. And yes, I do bring a harsh word and a direct word when necessary, But when it comes to ministering to people, he was meek. Now, what does it mean to be meek? Meek is a word that gets a bad rap. Meek does not mean weak. Meek is strength under control of the master. That's what the word literally means. Now, Jesus was described as meek. Amen? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was weak? No No way. You know what? Jesus was meek when he turned over the tables. Jesus was meek when he cast a legion of demons out of a man. Jesus was meek when he calmed the storm. He stood up and said, peace be still, and all the waves stopped. Jesus was meek when he rebuked the Pharisees. Meek does not mean weak. It means strength under control of the master. And because Paul wasn't going off half-cocked, because Paul wasn't this guy who was out of control, when he showed up, he was a man of purpose. He was a man who was focused on the Lord. He was a simply tools in the hand of his master, they said he's weak. Look at him. He's short. He's bow-legged. Look at the guy. We're afraid of him. Look who showed up. Now look at us. We're charismatic. We're bigger than him. We're stronger than him. You know, you should be following us. You know what? Can I encourage you with something? Don't make the mistake of being caught up, caught up in the charisma of a man. Amen? Don't be caught up. Oh, well, and you know what? Here's a real key. If you walk out of church talking about how charismatic the man was, you've missed it. You gotta be talking about how great God is, amen? You gotta be talking about the text and the message, not the man. If you talk about the man, you've missed it. And that's what Paul, Paul shows up, and he's not this charismatic man. He's not this guy that would normally draw people's attention. Who does that sound like? Jesus. The Bible says he was, there was no comeliness in him, there was nothing about him that would cause us to behold him. He's the son of the living God. He could come in any form he wanted to, and he came as a very plain man. Why? He did not want them attracted to him because of his looks or his charisma, but because of his character, because he's God. Amen? And Paul's very much the same. So Paul's this guy that they look at, and they think he's weak, and it's interesting that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, when I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message was, of my, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. He had one focus point people to Jesus he said I don't want you to remember me I don't want you to think about me if you forget me when I leave praise God remember him that ought to be our hardest Christians not trying to attract followers unto ourselves but followers unto him amen so the ministry needs to be built on the Lord and he and he is the pastor of this church by the way if you don't know that he's the senior pastor amen and we're simply the under rowers, one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And so sad, these, these ignorant Corinthians were, after Paul, even after he had taught them so much, they failed to realize the true power in meekness and gentleness. Not throwing your weight around. He wasn't a guy who'd barge in, he was a guy instead who led by example and who loved people. Now I want to say this, we'll see this later on, Paul's not afraid to speak the truth, is he? Not at all. But at the same time, he was never promoting himself. So he says there, I'm lowly among you, but being absent, I was bold toward you. Why? Because that was the message that was necessary. That was the message God wanted him to deliver. But we're going to see that when he comes back to Corinth, the boldness hasn't ended. Verse 2, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of this as if we walked according to to the flesh here's what he says i beg you and i love paul's heart he doesn't demand he begs i plead with you i intend to be bold against some now he's coming and when he comes he knows he's going to be dealing with these false teachers and he knows they have to be dealt with but he says the boldness i have toward them i don't want to have to have toward you the boldness that i'm going to have to come and rebuke these false teachers with i don't want to have to come and bring it to the whole church Paul understood the difference in ministering to individuals, because again, his heart was not to draw people unto himself. He begged the Corinthian Christians they would not fall into the same trap as these false apostles, lest he'd have to come down on them when he came as well, who think of us as if we are walking according to the flesh. These false teachers who, both, who them based or judged Paul based on worldly standards, what did they look at? Outward appearance. You know what, nothing new under the sun, amen? Don't we think things about people immediately as soon as we see them? We, we judge them, we do, even if we don't want to. There's judges we make about the way people dress, and the way they look, and the car they drive, and those kinds of things, and we do that, and you know what, that's what was happening then, and so Paul's coming, and you know, no doubt, oh, did you hear the Apostle Paul? And everybody, and in comes this bow-legged little short guy, right? And they're all like, That's him? And they're looking at things from a carnal perspective. Is that it? That's the guy? And you know, doesn't that encourage you to know that, that, that he is, again, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived? Not because of his stature, not because of his charisma, but because he was sold out for Jesus. Amen? Yes. And we can all be that man or that woman. Every single one of us. God doesn't look for ability, but availability. He looks for those who say, God, use me. If you pray that prayer, he will use you every single time so they accused him of walking in the flesh verse 3 for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh now he says we walk in the flesh that means we live in these physical bodies so even though we live in these physical bodies we don't battle in the physical realm it's a spiritual battle that we fight now paul would have been in big trouble if it was a physical battle he's a little guy He's a lightweight, right? He can't go in and fight people physically if it's just up to him. He would have been in big trouble. But the battle we fight is not physical. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual battle that every single one of us wages every single day. Though they were mortal, again, he's he's pointing them out to where the real, real battle takes place. Neither the enemy fought nor the weapons that they used were fleshly. He doesn't fight people. God, do you know that people are not our enemies, you guys? Do you know that? You know what people are? They're either your brother or they're your mission field. Amen? One or the other. They're either your brother or sister in Christ, or they're people that you want to see become your brother and sister in Christ. Amen? So they're not our enemies. They're our mission field. And we should love them unconditionally just because Jesus does. Amen? The Lord does. He loves them so much he'd rather die than live without them. We should have no enemies, none. Love them, minister to them. But we do have an enemy don't we? And it's the enemy. And it is a spiritual battle that we fight. And so we try to do things greater in a physical way, and we've missed it completely. And this is Paul's point. We do not war according to the flesh, because our enemy is not physical, our enemy is spiritual. Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a spiritual battle going on around us as we speak. Now sometimes we forget about it, we don't think about it. Some people go, ooh, that's just too, whoa, but guess what? The Bible talks about it, amen? Amen. Daniel prayed for 21 days, waiting for an answer for prayer. You guys remember the story? It took 21 days. The angel finally shows up and said, I, I was coming to you 21 days ago, but the prince of Persia, which is a name for a high-ranking demon, kept me from coming to you. And that's why I couldn't come. And then Michael the archangel came and tore up the prince of Persia, and now I'm here. Right? And praise God, the greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, and we don't have to fear the demonic. Amen? But we shouldn't have any fellowship with it either. We shouldn't play with it. But realize, again, it is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Syria was making war against Israel. And the king of Syria sent chariots and they surrounded the city. If you guys remember this story, I love this story. Let me just read four verses to you out of 2 Kings 6. And it says there, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. They surrounded the Jews. And when the servant of man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And a servant said to him, alas, my master, what are we going to do? We're done. He looked at things from a physical perspective and they were completely surrounded. Now I love these next couple of verses. So he answered and said, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He might have said, you're out of your mind. What are you looking at? We got a few people here and they're surrounding us with chariots. Dude, you've lost it. Can you count? Did you go to school, right? What's wrong with you? And you know what? Look at the next and the next verse says, and Elisha prayed and said, "Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see." Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know what? When we look at things from a spiritual perspective, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If God is for us, who can be against us? You plus God is the majority every single time. Amen? And that's the point Paul's making is, look, this is not a physical battle. And Elisha was able to look up and see the chariots and see what was going on around him. And you know what? I can't even imagine what it looks like over Santa Cruz. Amen? It's a spiritual battle here. But is our God greater than anything else going on in Santa Cruz? Absolutely. Can God turn this place right side up without a doubt? Amen? And you know what? May we have a burden. May we start praying for that. Because our God is great and our God is awesome. And he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You know what? We need to look up and know the chariots are surrounding Santa Cruz too. Amen? They're here. God's here. God's faithful. And he's a great and an awesome God. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. It's not physical weapons. We don't fight the enemy with guns and bombs. We fight them, and we don't fight them with the worldly weapons of personal influence and wealth and credentials and fancy speech, which is what the Judaizers used. They were very eloquent with their speech. They were very intelligent. They had great personalities. And we see the same thing today. People are impressed by people's ability, their, their oratory skills, and, you know, again, recommendations from other church leaders. Wow! You're so incredible. You have such a huge crowd. Can I tell you that I see guys on TV all the time, and I will sit through a message that's an hour long just waiting for the guy to throw a Bible verse in there somewhere. And it doesn't happen. And you know what? That is chaff. I don't, You can call it church, and call it whatever you want, If you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not teaching God's Word, as you've heard me say, put horns on the wall and call it the Elks Club and be done with it, because it's not church, amen? Church is not a gathering of people, it's coming before Almighty God and worshiping Him, amen? And you can be in a crystal cathedral with thousands of people, if you're not worshiping, then it's not church. And you can be in a gymnasium sitting on metal chairs, and if you're worshiping, the Lord's here, amen? And that's the key. And Paul understood that. And he said, look, this is not a carnal battle. We don't fight with bombs. We don't fight with eloquent speech. This is not what it's about. So what are the weapons that we use? Again, it's not about the man. It's about the message. It's not based on the human, but the divine. That's the key. When you come to church, you come to meet God, not to hear from a man. Amen? You come to church saying, Lord, touch my heart. Lord, minister to me. Not, I wonder what the pastor's got to say. Man, he's funny or whatever. That's weak. Don't do that. Amen? Come seeking to hear from God. So it's a spiritual battle. So guess what? Spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6 tells us about putting on the whole armor of God. So what are are our weapons? Our weapons are truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. There's our eloquent speech, you know, carnal things, worldly things. Ours are spiritual things. So how are we going to reach people? Not by you being more eloquent, but by you being on your knees more and interceding on that person's behalf that their eyes will be open to the truth. Amen? By bringing them, not your opinion, but the word of God, but always doing it in love. Never arrogant. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. It's by, by, the, by the grace of God that I'm not that person. Amen? And so we should come to them with a broken heart and we should come, again, not with physical weapons, not with our own eloquent speech, but come with spiritual weapons. Our warfare is not effective because we are not strong. It is effective because God is strong. Amen? You do it in your flesh, it'll, be, it'll come to nothing. You know what? You can work 170 hours a week in your flesh and it'll be fruitless. And you can pursue God for an hour with your whole heart and it can be very fruitful. So it's not the amount of time, it's who you're seeking now, it says, for the pulling down of strongholds. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that Paul, no doubt, was thinking about Joshua. Remember that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? You guys sang that song when you were a kid. Joshua fought the battle, right? Okay. And so he fought the battle of Jericho, and I love this. Can you imagine when you go out to the general and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. There's the greatest wall in one of the greatest cities around. We're going to march around and sing. <laughs> That's our plan. Imagine we went into Iraq and we did that. Okay, we're going to go fight Saddam. Here's what we're going to do leaving all the tanks, everything behind. We're going to walk through Iraq and sink. People think you're out of your mind, right? But you know what? We all know what happened. They marched around Jericho and they worshiped God. And what happened? The walls came down. You know what? Because when we worship and we seek God, He can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And when what's done that way, who gets glorified? Not the general, God. Amen? Amen. Not the army, God. Nobody could say, man, that was a great strategy. Marching around like that and singing. We should do that, all right. No, that, you know, hey, the general's really smart. What, you know, what tactical school did you go to? No. Instead, you're going, man, God is awesome. These guys had huge walls and a mighty army, and we sang songs, and it came down. You know what? This is a picture for us. Because in every one of our lives, we have strongholds. What are strongholds? They're walls built up that keep us from walking in the center of God's will. Areas of our life where we struggle. And you know what? The way you bring that wall down isn't trying harder in your flesh. You know what it is? It's coming to the place of worship and prayer and being desperate for God. That's when those walls come down, just like they did in Jericho. Amen? And so he says here in this verse, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We cannot have victory if we operate in our flesh. We need to be operating in the Spirit, verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Where does all sin start? Let me tell you, if you don't know, in your mind. It starts in your thought life. And you know what? The Bible, Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've had hatred in your heart, you're a murderer. And so it begins, and that's why he says in this verse that we need to take every thought into captivity. Satan works overtime trying to capture your mind. And by the way, I know we got the youth group in here, so I won't be real graphic, but here's the thing. Pornography is rampant. And if you're struggling with that, guys, you stop. And you need to confess it to somebody and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Because the enemy uses that to get into your mind and grab a hold of you, and that's a stronghold. But you know what? Prayer and worship and seeking God and going to his word and having accountability can bring that thing down today. Amen? Amen? God is greater. But that's where the enemy comes. He wants to draw you away with jealousy and envy and those kinds of things that are all here and the sin has already taken place here before the action comes out. And it's so true. And he says we've got to take those thoughts captive. Again, thoughts brought into captivity. Those that are not according to God's will don't entertain them. The Bible says, resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. Just say, no, get lost, right? Not interested. Now, do you know when you're being tempted? Yes. Absolutely. Satan. One thing about Satan is, you know, duh, here he comes, right? And, and we know it's happening, and you know it, and he's and he he the chief of all liars, and his favorite thing is, God already forgave you, so just go ahead and do it anyway, and he'll forgive you, right? Have you, you ever heard that before? Right? liar. He'd say, he didn't say, it's going to destroy your relationship with God. You're going to be in broken fellowship. It's going to keep you from being, being able to minister to people. It's going to render you ineffective and your flesh will never be satisfied. Do it anyway, right? We wouldn't do that. But that's what the enemy does. He tries to draw us away like that and he says, you've got to take those thoughts captive. Don't entertain yourself with the very sins Christ died for, amen? amen. We shouldn't be watching stuff and putting stuff into our mind that we wouldn't participate in. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, your mind. Again, Satan will use your mind as a target of his attacks. He knows that sin starts there. And that's why he says here, you've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Thought's not to be a safe haven for sinful imagination. It's not okay. And I hear people say that. Well, I'm married, but it doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. You ever heard that? Doesn't mean I can't lust in my heart. Yes, it does. Amen? Yes, it does. Be in love with your spouse. Amen? Have them be the only place your affection ever goes. In your thought life included. Amen? Think of your wife. Think of your husband. That's where your affection ought to be. And if you're single, keep your affection on God until he brings the one you're supposed to have your affection on. Amen? Only there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means my mind can be renewed. And that means I can follow God with my whole heart. It means I can bring those thoughts into captivity. He wouldn't command me to do something that was impossible. Thoughts of lust, fear, anger, greed, bitterness are not to be fed, but brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What does that mean? He's saying he's ready to punish all disobedience. Disobedience was not to be taken lightly. If it continued, godly punishment would follow. Sometimes we think if we're getting away with sin, that somehow it's okay with God. God's grace is not God's permission. Amen? Well, it hasn't happened yet. Nobody said anything yet. I'm getting away with it, so it must be okay with God. Absolutely not. That's why we have the Bible. Amen? He gives us God's word so we clearly understand. And it cracks me up because people always have special circumstances. But Pastor Dave, you don't understand. I, it's just a real unique situation. Let me tell you about it, right? I'm like, okay, go ahead. And then they tell me, I'm like, you're in sin. You've got to stop it. But no, what does the Bible say? Yeah, but I, you know, but uh, you got to understand. My living situation is really tough, and I just don't have the finances right now. So I'm living with an unbeliever, but it's really because stop. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers unless you don't have enough cash. Is that what it says? (laughs) Right? And too often we want to compromise the word of God because of our circumstances. And the Bible says, don't do that. Flee youthful lust. Don't compromise with the world. Have no fellowship with it. And he says, disobedience will be punished while obedience will be blessed. Do you want to be punished or blessed? Duh, right? I mean, Who wants to be punished? Can you imagine me telling my kids that? Okay, all the kids line up who want to swat on this side, and whoever wants chocolate cake, come over here. And then we do that with God. God says, I want to bless you. I want to pour out blessings upon you. I love you. Here's my guidelines for your life. If you follow them, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can even imagine. Just follow me in obedience. I love you. You're my child. And we go, I know better than God. So he created the universe. I mean, I'm 15, so I know everything, right? And too often we get that way. We think we know better than the creator of the universe. We've missed it. We need to follow God and know that He's a loving and a gracious God. Godly discipline will be brought upon their disobedience. So, part one, does He walk according to the flesh? When you look at somebody, are they ministering in the Spirit, or is it fleshly stuff that's coming out? Is God being glorified, or is the man being magnified? Do you hear more about the man, or do you hear more about God? When you walk into the ministry, who's the ministry focused on? The man or God? If you see the worldwide ministry of with someone's name after it, run. Amen? Because touch not the glory. You know, one Wednesday night these guys were messing around in here. I don't know if you guys heard about this. And I come in here and up on the screen for the it said the worldwide ministry of Dave Johnston. I said, "You're all fired." Fired, all of you. you got to get that down for one person's season. Now I tell you about it, right? But the point is, the point is that again, God alone should be glorified. Man will disappoint us, God never will, amen? And we don't follow man, we follow the Lord. So does he walk according to the flesh? Well, What about, does he base things solely on outward appearance? Look at verse seven. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so, we are Christ. We belong to Christ. Paul's diagnosis of the problem in the with the Corinthian troublemakers was they looked only at the outward appearance. If we only look at the outward appearance, we're going to fall for a lie. People will say, yeah, but, you know, that church is growing, and they've got so much going on over there, and there's a lot of great activities, and you know, just and, you know, and the guy's so articulate, it just look, looks so wonderful to me. It's called the Mormon church, but that shouldn't be a problem, right? You know, because it's, quote, fruitful, well, there's a lot of happy people there. Well, you know what? We need to pray for them because they're happy about a lie. Amen? And we need to point them to the truth. And he says, do you just look at the outward appearance? The Corinthians were not spiritually minded enough to discern that what Paul was doing was what God had called them to do. They called his meekness as weakness. They contrasted him with these powerful false teachers who were walking around. Look at Paul. He's bow-legged little wimpy guy, short guy. Look at him. And look at this powerful guy over here. Who would you want to follow? Reminds me of Israel when they wanted their first king. Remember the story? The the king was was God. Amen. And then it was David who was anointed king, but they wanted Saul. Why? Because he was yoked. He was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the day. He's our governor now. Hey, well, that's how that works out. But you know, the point is, they wanted someone big, someone strong, someone yoked. They could stand behind. And you know what? We need to not make that mistake. Man does look at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Millions duped by fancy packages and flashy presentations filled with feel-good, fluffy messages, but void of any real biblical contact, Content, excuse me. Focus should not be on the charisma of the messenger, but the content of the message. Amen? Amen. More of God's word and less of us. You know what? I, I have to tell you, just on a side note, one of the hardest things for me, I get called sometimes to speak at conferences and stuff, and they'll always give me like one verse. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm not doing that. Because if it's one verse in an hour, there's too much Dave. Amen? I'll say, you know, give me a chapter, not a verse. Well, yeah, we're going through, and you verse—you got verse 5, part A. you got four words. I'm not doing that. Why? Because, again, that's what happens. You go to places, and they'll be teaching one verse for 19 weeks. I mean, there's more, they're putting more in that verse than God put in there, right? What they do is they don't teach that verse. They bounce from it and chase everything under the sun. We need to teach the Bible and more of God's Word, not less of it, amen? More of God's word because God's word, not man's words, transforms lives. It is God's word that changes us, not well packaged entertainment and fluff. Amen. You might feel really good when you walk out. I love to ask people wherever they go to church, including here. What did you learn last Sunday? Um, there was a guy in the drums that was really sweet. <laughs> what else? Um. You know what I mean? They go to church. The guy was so funny, though. What did he teach about? I got no idea. The, the message was something about seven steps to something. I'm trying to on step three right now, but I don't remember. Right? And that's what happens. And there's just there's no truth being imparted. Amen. There's no transforming power of God's word. And again, I, I want you to know, I'm not attacking anybody. We're all on the same team, and I want to see God do great things. But I'm encouraging you. That you be in God's word. Instead of 40 days of purpose, how about a lifetime of purpose? Amen? How about a lifetime of pursuing God with your whole heart? You know what? I got one book right here I need to read. How about you? Let's read this one. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? Even so, we are Christ, having looked only, again, not at the outward appearance. Because that's when they rejected Paul. Paul doesn't say it's wrong to test the apostle. He just questioned the way they did it. So man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. May we test things from a spiritual perspective, not a physical one. There's a lot of people there that must be good. No. There's a lot of people there It might be good. But what is it that's producing fruit? Is there fruit being produced? Are there people being? Are disciples being made? Verse 8 through 11. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. Now what they're saying again about Paul here, Paul's saying, look, if I boast, and he's talking about, and again, he's he's humble. He's saying, if I boast, my boasting is in the Lord. And Paul's this humble, godly man who wants no part of self-promotion. Yet he must speak up concerning the truth and the purpose behind his calling. Not to bring glory to himself, but to promote the Lord. And then he says, here's where my authority comes from. So the next point is, what's the source of this man's or woman's authority? Where does their authority come from? Were they voted on by men or called by God? And those are clear distinctions, by the way, you guys. Too often we want to vote as men. You know what, there's no voting in this church. Did you know that? There's one vote, God's. Amen? Amen. We don't vote. We don't have any committees. If you came here to join a committee, I'm sorry. We don't have any. Amen? Why? Because people die by committee. We, we don't need committees. We need passion for God. We need to all be in His Word. Let Him be the leader of this church. Amen? Not vote on whether or not we think God might have said that. This church is doing that today. What do we think about homosexuality? Well, we think that we should say it's okay because we don't... What, what does the Bible say? What I think is irrelevant. Amen? What do we think about people living here? What do we think about drugs? What what does the Bible say? That is the, aren't you glad we have the Bible? Aren't you glad we're not voting on stuff? I'm so thankful. Praise God. No campaigning, right? The pro-drug group is over here and the anti-drug group, right? No, we're not doing that. We're, We're trusting God and we're seeking only his word. Paul's calling and mission was to edify, not to destroy. So his authority came from God. And then look what he was coming to do. Not to destroy, but to build up. You know what? It takes love to build up. And it takes more skill to build up than it does to destroy. And that's what we ought to be doing in the body of Christ, is building each other up. Amen? In the most holy faith. That's what the Bible says. Encouraging one another. Strengthening one another. And again, using the gifts God has given us. The difference between Paul and the Judaizers was Paul used his authority to build up the church. And the Judaizers used the church to build up their authority. They got their authority by winning men over to them. Paul's authority came from God and he used it to build up the church. And that's the difference. Verse 9 through 11 there, as I just read, we see that Paul points out that contrary to their accusations, there was no contradiction between what he preached and what he wrote. Paul exhorted them and encouraged them, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. Some people think you can only exhort people or encourage people. Didn't Jesus do both? Jesus exhorted them and even rebuked them if necessary, and he also encouraged and loved on them. And both of those things go hand in hand, and they should in the life of the believer. Paul called to exhort, even rebuke, when necessary, but also to love and encourage. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He rebuked the hypocrites, and at the same time, he loved on the hurting. Verse 11 says, Let such a person consider this, that what we want are in word by letters when we are absent. Such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul had written this letter from a heart of love, but here he addresses his accusers and lets them know that, that the words that were in his letters were, again, what God had called him to bring. He's also going to bring the same thing in his actions when he comes. They were saying he was meek. Well, guess what? He's not going to be real meek with the false accusers when he gets there. He's going to be meek, strengthened to control, but he's also going to be bold. He's not going to be silent. He's not going to sit and say nothing. Paul will not use his authority to demand respect by the way if you have to demand respect you don't have it amen if you have to go around and wield your position and wield your authority husbands that starts with you sit down shut up and submit woman i'm in charge around here don't you know bible says i'm the head of the house those guys end up in my office i don't know why she won't submit i can't imagine i don't know why either right The Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Amen? That means lay down your life for her. Don't demand. You know what? If you lay down your life for her and minister to her and serve her, she will respect you. Amen? If you go around demanding respect, you're not going to get it. Nor do you deserve it. Amen? And Paul's saying the same thing here. These guys were demanding respect. Paul never did. Paul, what did he do? He was just obedient and faithful to God's calling on his life. Mature leaders offer suffer, suffer, While they wait to act, while immature leaders act quickly and make others suffer. A mature believer will will go ahead and endure suffering while he's waiting for God to move. While an immature one will move quickly, even if it causes harm to others. The false teachers depended on letters of recommendations, and Paul had only one recommendation. It was the only one that mattered, the one that came from God. You know what people will say to me sometimes? how come so-and-so in your church is a pastor? How come so-and-so is in this ministry? How come so-and-so? Let me tell you right now, I don't call anybody to anything God does. I just recognize it. I watch it, I see it, they do it, whether we call them that or not. And that's why every time we've ordained somebody in this church, when I call them up here, people go, well, duh. I thought the guy was already a pastor. You know why? Because they're already serving that way, amen? And it's God who calls and God who equips. And man just simply recognizes it. So these Judaizers, their authority came from men, and they used it to build up themselves. Paul's authority came from God, and he used it to build up the body. Last section. What is the standard he measures himself against? What's the standard for you? What's the standard for me? What's the standard for, for somebody in ministry? Look at verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's a tongue twister. Here's what he's saying. It's a mistake men often make. They compare themselves with other men. When you use other men and women as the standard, you probably end up feeling pretty good about yourself. Hey, I'm an old Osama bin Laden, right? I haven't flown a plane in any towers lately. I'm a pretty good guy, right? You know, I was in prison, I did prison ministry for four and a half years, where I went in every Tuesday and taught in the prison. And I would talk to guys on death row, they would talk about how good they were and compare to the guy next to them. I only killed eight people, he killed 12. I guess it's all relative, right? It's amazing to me that we can always find somebody worse than us. And that's what these guys were doing, he said, you guys are comparing yourself by yourselves, they had this mutual fan club, I think you're great, well I think you're great too, well we must both be great then, yes we're great you know what I mean? And he said, you've got to stop doing that. It's not what other people think about you. It's what does God think about you. What does God say about you? And again, don't make that mistake. Don't, again, God doesn't grade it on the curve. He grades at the cross, amen? He doesn't grade it on the curve. He didn't say, okay, top half, you're getting in. That's not how it works. And the Judaizers, again, belong to this mutual admiration society. And today's churches, again, It's not about quantity, it's about quality. It's not about drawing a crowd but making disciples. It's not about social relevance or open-mindedness. It's about teaching the truth of God's Word without compromise. In love. Amen? That's why we exist. The Judaizers were patting each other on the back and they were ridiculing Paul for his outward appearance and Paul was the one walking in the center of God's will. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. Amen? Verse 13 through 15. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Now, Paul was called by God to minister to the Corinthians. He was appointed by God, not voted on by men. And you know what? When he ministered, he didn't look at what other men were doing. He compared himself only to Christ. Now, if you look at other men, you're doing fine. You compare yourself to the Lord. How you doing? You're falling short. Amen? You're in desperate need of a Savior. And that's everybody in this room. Verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul assures the Corinthians that he was not overstepping his bounds by coming to them. Because who had planted the church there to begin with? Paul did. Paul's coming back, and the Judaizers are mocking him and saying, he doesn't need to be here. What's he doing here? Who's this guy? He's the guy that God brought here to plant the church to begin with. And he's the reason God used him, that the church exists. And they're ridiculing him when ought to be praising God for him. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. You know what he says here? I'm not going to go out and build on another man's foundation. Who do you think he's talking to? The Judaizers. Who, whose foundation are they building on? His. He planted the church that was there. They're ridiculing him. He was the one that came and planted the church in Corinth. He says, I'm not going to build on another man's labor, which is exactly what they were doing. It's amazing how when there's a ministry that's flourishing, people want to come alongside and siphon people away from it. You have to watch for wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's so true. You have people that go around from church to church trying to convert people to their way of thinking. They couldn't plant a church with that process because nobody would come. So instead they go somewhere where there's fruit and they go in and go after the sheep. And he's saying here, you guys are feeding on the sheep that were planted here by God and God used me and you're laboring again, building on another man's foundation. Verse 16, and again, we're not to touch the glory of God. He alone should be glorified. Verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul said, You know what? Not only do I want to come to Corinth, but I want to go beyond. And I want to go to a place where there's a need. Here's a sign of somebody who's called. They want to be where there's a need. Not where it's easy, but where there's a need. Can I tell you that when Pastor Don, I went in and I met with him and I said, Pastor Don, it's time for me to leave. Most of you know I was a youth pastor for almost 15 years. Southern California, and then in San Jose. And I said, I'll go anywhere you tell me. You name the city, I'm going. And he said, North Carolina. Okay. And he said, Tracy, fine. And if he told me Beijing, China, I was going to go. And then finally he said, you know what, Dave? The more I pray about it, the place I really think you belong is Santa Cruz. I said, oh, no, I can't go there. (laughs) Anywhere anywhere but there. Ichabod, the glory of the parted, right? (laughs) The point, again, is... That we need to go where the need is. Amen? You know what? I don't like cold weather. And I don't like $800,000 condos either. You know? But I'm called here. And you're called here. You live here. Amen? And if if it was up to me, I'd be living in Arizona where I could buy a house for $90,000 and I like 105 degree heat. My wife thinks I'm a lizard. You know? I like it hot. It's not hot here. But you know what? I love being here because this is where God called me to be. Amen? And I want to be here for the rest of my life. Because I want to see this place turn right side up for Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's heart. Go beyond the sphere. Go where the need is. Don't just go where it's easy. Step out. And don't be afraid. Again, these guys went where it was easy. Last verses. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. If we boast, we should boast only in the Lord. Amen? You can boast about what God's done in your life, and you should. You know what? Here's who I was, and then I met Jesus, and here's who I am. You know what that's called? Your testimony. Amen? But then he also says, let not your commendations come where, not be from man, but from the Lord. You know what? There's one commendation I'm looking forward to, and I desire above all else, and it's seven words. Well done, now good and faithful servant. That's the commendation I'm I'm looking forward to. How about you? Amen? That's where our heart ought to be. And so we see here, it's not what I think about me or what others think about me, but it's what God knows about me that matters. Amen? You can fool men, you can fool the world, but you can't fool God. Where are you standing with Him? So how do we judge one who's truly called by God? Does He walk according to the flesh, minister according to the flesh? Does He base things solely on outward appearance? What is the source of His or her authority? What is the standard that he or she is measured against? And where does their praise come from? You know what? If you're praised by a million men, but God is not praising you or blessing you, you've missed it. But if you've got a million men ridiculing you, and God's behind you saying, I'm blessed, then you've made it. Amen? Then you've got it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. Help us, Lord, to walk in the center of your will. Help us, Lord, to be the men and women who do not seek the approval of men, but, Lord, just want to walk in the center of your will, to know your heart, to seek your face. Lord, may we not be motivated by popularity with men, but faithfulness to God. May we not, again, be seeking for the, the applause of the world. May we not look at things from an outward appearance. May we not judge things based on our physical eyes, but, Lord, based on the word of God and the testimony of your Holy Spirit within our hearts. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. We praise as we go this time of communion, that, Lord, this would be a time that we would look back to the cross, remembering that great and awesome work. May it it never grow common. Lord, I pray as we take communion that we'd also look within, examining our own hearts before you. Lord, if there's thoughts that that need to be taken captive, may we ask you to take those even before we take communion today. And then, Lord, may we also look forward to the day when we will be around your throne and we will have this feast with you anew. We ask these things in your holy and precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Quickly, here at Calvary Chapel, when we take communion, the worship team's gonna play worship. You just come on up. Communion is for Christians. You must be born again. Communion is looking back to the work of the cross and it's examining your own heart before God. So It's a time of reflection and a time of remembrance. Okay, he says, as often as you do this, Do this in remembrance of me. So come on up, grab the elements, go back to your chair and and take communion and we'll close it with another song. God bless you guys.